0: Designing a rocket is actually quite easy, but actually making that a production scale system is orders of magnitude harder, right? So, so I think the same thing kind of applies here where people were able to create prototypes in academia around trying to use synthetic data to improve the training of computer vision. But then nobody's actually really tried to make it a production system, meaning how can we solve a lot of the world's problems with it? Right? And that problem was something I wanted to tackle.
1: hey everyone welcome to brains behind ai a show where we meet the innovators entrepreneurs and the real brains behind some of the most successful ai startups we ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit and from their experience draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours this is your host ari thank you for spending time with us and now let the show begin One of the biggest challenges in AI is not machine learning itself, but lack of enough data to do machine learning. So how do you solve for that? Well, enter synthetic data. Data that's generated programmatically that resembles the original data. Now, well, it all makes sense when the data is quantitative and discrete in nature. For instance, your customer personas. You can create lookalike customers using statistical techniques, and that's all well and good. But it doesn't solve for all use cases. Think computer vision. Think self-driving cars. How do we generate synthetic data that's spatial in nature and multidimensional? Well, our guest today is solving just for that. They're using gaming techniques with machine learning to create virtual worlds that serves as a synthetic data platform for computer vision applications. Meet AI Reverie's Dale Kim.
2: Today we have Dale Kim. Dale is the technical founder of AI Reverie, a simulation platform that trains AI to understand the world and make it a better place, which we will discover more about on the show. AI Reverie was ranked by Forbes as one of the top 25 machine learning companies to look out for in 2020. Formerly, Dale was the data scientist at the New York Times, and his research learnings have been published in several of the top machine learning conferences, such as NIPS, ICML, and AI stats. He received his PhD in computer science from Brown University, focusing on the development of scalable machine learning
0: algorithms.
2: Dale, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me here.
1: Dale, before we dive into the company and learn more about what you do, I want to spend a minute to learn about your personal background. It sure. sounds very impressive. So we want to understand how it prepared you for where you are today.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I actually uh, studied literature in college. So, so I didn't really, wasn't really a technical person. So I came at, came at it from a very different angle and started studying that. And then I became really interested in neuroscience and then started doing research in schizophrenia neuropsychiatry. That led me to start thinking about the brain, thinking about what are the sort of fundamental aspects of intelligence. So that's how I started doing a PhD in machine learning. That transition happened over the course of five years until just trying to figure out after my undergraduate degree to get into the PhD program. And then after that, once I left the PhD, I sort of was realizing that academia was a kind of a bubble in and of itself. There was a lot of really cool research and development happening, but All that stuff can sometimes, you know, be funneled out as a result of the lack of being able to productionalize, you know, create a production process around some of the research. So I wanted to apply machine learning to areas that I thought weren't really being applied to. And so journalism was one of those areas. So that's why I then went to the New York Times. And then I was there for about two and a half years, working on trying to solve some of their problems. And afterwards, I really wanted to go back to this idea of using simulation and you know my advisor was a computer vision professor so I was really well aware of, of some of the you know fundamental problems I think that was happening in the field that needed to be solved and the big problem in my mind at the time was data you know just this really laborious process of labeling data if we're thinking about supervised learning as a sort of way to really train the state of the art vision algorithms i thought it was a very inefficient process so
1: So how did you stumble upon the idea? Did it happen at New York Times? Where did this idea hit you?
0: I was actually aware of these problems early on in my PhD. You know, and synthetic data is not necessarily a new concept. So, you know, in terms of the academic world, like people have been trying to do simulation and stuff like that to solve this labeling problem. I think a quote that's actually... This is actually from Elon Musk. Actually, I think he said something to this extent, so I'll roughly quote him. But he said that designing a rocket is actually quite easy, but actually making that a production scale system is orders of magnitude harder, right? So so I think the same thing kind of applies here, where people were able to create prototypes in academia around trying to use synthetic data to improve the training of computer vision. But then nobody's actually really tried to make it a production system meaning how can we solve a lot of the world's problems with it? Right? And that mm-hmm. problem was something I wanted to tackle. So it's always been sort of happening, you know, occurring in the back of my mind and just sort of thinking that this was an important idea. It really took me a lot to leave the New York Times. I love that organization. I love that place. There were so many wonderful friendships I made there. But at some point, I really wanted to do my own thing. And so that was the, the big step I took.
1: That makes sense. So when you realized that that's something you want to pursue, where did you go? Did you start working on it in your apartment? How did you approach Yeah, it? Yeah,
0: I definitely took a step down <laughs> in terms of salary. <laughs> and, and so I, I ended up just moving out of my nice apartment, living with two roommates. Um, I spent several months learning game engine programming. So I just had to just pick that up and understand what it took to build virtual worlds. So I became a game programmer for <laughs> several months. And then uh, at some point, I felt that I had an idea and a vision for it that could really work. But you know, also keep in mind when I was at the New York Times, I met my co-founder there, Paul Woborski. I worked with him very closely at the New York Times, and together we helped lead the international expansion there. We we're trying to actually like have the New York Times work in places like South America or other countries. So he he was an entrepreneur background, former CEO of GigaOm. So we talked a lot about this about startups ideas you know product market fit you know all that stuff and he he became a believer in this idea <laughs> he got very excited and he left a very well paying <laughs> job with the new york times to join me for this so i'm quite thankful for it in that sense yeah
2: so when you were at the new york times and you found your co-founder how long was this an idea between you two how long were you at the new york times and how long were you guys kind of going back and forth of your idea for you know leaving the new york times was it kind of like an overnight thing or was it did it take a while to evolve
0: Oh, yeah, it took some time to evolve. So I left earlier. So Paul joined me about a year later. So it was actually, mm-hmm. there was an incubation period about a year after I left the New York Times where, you know, I was slumming it a little bit <laughs> and just trying to figure out how this could work and how we can scale this and make this a real process. And uh, around that time, of course, I kept talking with Paul. I you mean, know, we we're friends at the end of the day. And it wasn't until a year had passed that he was willing to sort of make that decision to leave the New York Times and join this. Um, we, of course, we had to raise some funding and things like that to help support our salaries. But it, it took about a year before he left mm-hmm. the New York Times to join. So,
1: um, Yeah, I have to say it's a quite a feat to not only leave a good job, but also get your friend to leave with you. Yeah. yeah. So so that's great, and it seems like you were working on it for some time. Were you working on it by yourself? Did you create a minimum viable product before you went out and got some investment? How did you approach that part?
0: I knew that there are ways to scale world creation. So so the first sort of thing I was focused on was this idea of taking geospatial data and recreating the world from that. So so if I could take and ingest things like open street maps, satellite images, terrain data? Can I use that to fuel the process of creating a world at a one-to-one scale in a very large area? So to keep in mind, like, you know that famous video game Grand Theft Auto? They spent over a $100 million just making that small part of the world, right? In terms of art, design, all of that stuff. So I was thinking... I can't spend hundred million dollars making a virtual world. How do I do it? So that was the first MVP, I would say. That was the first thing I wanted to sort of create and try. And then, can we use machine learning and you know things like that to help accelerate that process? So that was the beginning. AI Reverie's been around for four years now, so it's been quite a journey from there. And you know, mm-hmm. we started with just me and and two other developers we found relatively early on, and then now it's you know thirty people. So it's been, it's been a, a long journey in terms of mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that we did and changed and learned that there was all sorts of opportunities in one vertical and then started pushing over there. What I love about this company and, and what we did was that there are so many interesting computer vision problems in the world that, you know, a lot of people are focused on things like self driving cars or data sets or, you know, benchmarks for particular data sets. but there's problems in agriculture. People are trying to figure out how to remove weeds and use less herbicides. There's all sorts of problems in consumer packaged goods where they're trying to understand and optimize you know, the creation of goods. Interesting problems in retail, government, so many interesting problems. And, and that's yeah. one of the best parts of it, is just saying, how do we solve all of these different problems using synthetic data?
1: It's, it's super exciting, right? Right. My question to you is, how do you stay focused, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much to do. So did you go through a process in terms of refining? And I ask because a lot of entrepreneurs go through that all the time. You look at the technology, just like as you mentioned, there's so much you can do with computer vision and everything is so exciting. And it's essentially applying that same technology. So Mm -hmm. what was your process in terms of deciding where do you want to start out? What was your pitch head?
0: Basically, the, the most early adopters, I would say, was actually the government, which was kind of surprising. And, and I mean that in the sense that they were the ones who were most open to the idea of synthetic data. So keep in mind, when we started this, very few people believed in synthetic data like as, a, as an actual solution to a product. So part of it is just who's interested in using synthetic data to solve computer vision problems. And there were some really interesting government applications around safety and things like that that we wanted to work on with them. So that was a, a sort of a, a nice sort of thing to understand how we can sort of create the right product market fit. Along with that, there were a lot of other interesting commercial applications that were starting to happen, but it wasn't, ear- it was a market that was a little, like, I think we came in, to be honest, a little too soon, right? It was still, there was still a process of evangelism for corporations that, that like barely had computer vision teams, right? So they were just barely trying to understand how to set up these teams and create all of this stuff. So we were really looking, we were making phone calls, trying to figure out <laughs> where are their opportunities. And in the beginning, it was all about, so while we were doing that and trying to find the market fit, we were creating an infrastructure that allowed us to really do things at a scale. And and what do I mean by that? One of the most important problems you have to solve with synthetic data is how to make it better, right? At the end of the day, how do I, it's not the real world, so it's going to have Disadvantages there. So we're trying to lay out the infrastructure and the pipeline while we're trying to create business. And at some point, it's just a matter of getting the right clients, the right partners to work with you and and winning those contracts. And uh, two companies that at some point that we won and we did a really great job with that I can publicly name, there's a lot that I can't because of NDAs, unfortunately, is 7-Eleven. That's a big one. We're, we're building out their cashless shopping system, and Blue River is another company that we're working with to try to help them with the weed detection problem, which I think is a really important one. That might have been a pretty long answer, but it, it was—it nice. wasn't an easy process. I, it, it's mm-hmm. hard for every entrepreneur to find product market fit. It's really hard when you're building deep tech that you also have mm-hmm. to evangelize, and on top of that, you have to believe. You know, I, I like to think about it from first principles, so that The conviction was there. So when I talked to somebody new who wanted to join a company, I was convinced and I was able to convince others that at the end of the day, synthetic data is going to be, it's a necessary part of the computer vision stack. Mm
1: -hmm. So, So
0: real data is wonderful and it's always been the status quo, but I actually don't think you can train the future of computer vision without synthetic data. That is literally it's not just a replacement, it's, it's, it's a fundamental part of making sure we can accelerate the field because so much in academia, a lot of computer vision problems haven't even been tackled because of the lack of data. If you mm-hmm. think about things like activity recognition or, or things that deal with video and you have to annotate frames of video, 30 frames per second for minutes of video, that's an insane amount of data to annotate. And so there's been real limitations in the field itself because of the lack of this technology.
2: No, that's really, really interesting. And I wanted to even go back about the gaming. Can you go deeper on how you use gaming techniques and machine learning to really develop virtual worlds?
0: So one process there is the idea of generating virtual worlds through you know algorithmic processes, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot of things you can do to create and procedurally create geometry, things like that. So mm-hmm. we do some stuff there that's really interesting. But gaming technology is not meant for you know the w- typical ways you build video games that process and that engineering process is very different than than what you have to do for computer vision and i'll give mm-hmm. you an example in video games you're often focused on narrative structures you're focused on storytelling you're focused on creating a sort of you know experience that people come back with and there's a beginning and an end for computer vision there, there's no need for that right it, it's not at the end of the day you're trying to detect a plant or you're trying to detect a vehicle all of those things don't really apply there. What you want to figure out with synthetic data is how do you create diversity? How do you create as many variations of the vehicle? How do you create as many variations in the world itself and, and in the structure of the world itself? And that was the, the, the part of the problem where we're trying to use machine learning and trying to figure out the right engineering pipeline to develop that. Understood. Yeah. So
1: connecting the dots between the stories. So it seems like you built something, then you raise your initial VC round, call it the seed round. Yeah. And, and then you kept exploring and you got into some synthetic data and the value of synthetic data and computer vision. What is your offering today? What are some of the key things you go to market with?
0: Yeah, great question. So for us, we often work very closely with our customers, right? So we often work we have these meetings where we talk about what their problem is, what they're struggling with, you know, the edge cases that they can't account for. I think an important point to bring up is a lot of the people we talk to, they just can't even get the data, right? It just doesn't exist or it's so rare that it's really hard to find the data set itself, right? So, a lot of times it's just about understanding their data and what their needs are and the way we like to work and, you know, the the process that I think has worked really well for us is we actually benchmark the synthetic data, you know. So we actually train an algorithm, and we have a whole pipeline that automatically trains these vision algorithms on the synthetic data. And we often ask customers, you know, share just what you're comfortable with with the label data set, and then we'll benchmark it against that. And tell, and then we keep iterating and learning how to improve the synthetic data through that process, right? So that's how we typically work, and this is why the the relationships have been so strong because they trust that we're going to benchmark the data. We're going to see how well it works, keep making improvements on it to the point that they feel really good. And, and in many cases, uh, yeah, that's usually the general process at a high level. And what
1: is the business model? Is it consulting? Is it subscription? How,
0: how oh, do you... It's, it's basically, you know, we, we deliver, we sell bundles of data. So we'll just mm-hmm. sell this, uh, like huge packages of data at a, at a marginal cost to us. And that depends on, you know, how much data they buy, the more data they buy, the cheaper it is. And we're moving more towards a licensing system where we actually create the whole virtual world and you can just get as much data as you want. So you can actually hit APIs to collect that data, change time of day, lighting, diversity of objects, be able to change scenarios, things like that. And then they can just hit the cloud and we have our own data center that allows them to collect the data and then they have the freedom of doing that. So we're going to be beta testing that probably the end of this year with some of our mm-hmm. customers.
2: Is there an industry that you target the most or that you've seen the most, you know, traction with your with your product?
0: I think retail is a really good one. Yeah. Retail? Yeah. yeah, because when you're thinking about I would say the retail stuff like if you talk to anybody who's done this and I have talked to people at Amazon, I have talked to people uh, you know 7-Eleven obviously like the synthetic data is necessary. It almost becomes like you know. Without it, it just doesn't like work. Mm-hmm. This doesn't scale. You can't you can't train a cashierless shopping system without synthetic data because there's so much diversity in the way people cross their arms and duck under other people and all sorts of things happen. Believe it or not, it makes you know a shopping scene actually more dramatic than I ever imagined. So <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that happen there. And then um, retail is a great one, but I. In a general sense, the more I would say the way to think about this actually is, is, is narrow AI. So the term I like to use narrow AI, and people have different definitions of it, but the more enclosed, like so a great example is consumer packaged goods and conveyor belt, right? So let's say you're just uh, looking at mugs coming out of a conveyor belt. It's a pretty narrow AI problem, right? Versus a self-driving car problem where you're just you know, the world, anything can happen in the world, right? That's where I would say synthetic data shines. Like In in those instances, and and some of the stuff we found, is that you can almost use synthetic data entirely. You actually don't need to use real-world data. And the more complex the world gets, and the more diverse it becomes, the synthetic data needs to be offset with a little bit more real data. But in general, what we're finding is that synthetic data can actually be 90% of the data necessary. And then the 10%... The, of real data you, you typically need only 10% of the data you actually buy <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that we found if you supplement it with synthetic data so
1: interesting right i was going to ask you that so you can build great models just with 10% of actual data augmented by say 90% synthetic data right
0: yeah oftentimes you'll you'll use a lot more synthetic data because it's a lot cheaper Sorry. to generate and then the way we sort of think about that is that the 10% of the real data you know, so the 90% of the real data, the synthetic data, really, the way I think of it, about it when it comes to neural networks and deep learning is that it sort of gives you a prior belief about the world, right? And mm-hmm. then the, the, the 10% real data is used to fine-tune it. So we often do things like transfer learning to fine-tune a pre-trained synthetic algorithm to just get it to the point of, imp- you know, get it over the, the edge. And the, 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 the little bit of real data helps to help model things like sensor noise. Things that are unique to a sensor and some interesting diversity that might exist there as well. So
1: just an interesting detour. A few weeks back, we had a company called Unlearn AI on our podcast. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're using synthetic data to create what they call digital twins for clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So being able to run a trial in in a silico. But as you know, there are only so many patients that have rare disease, right? Hence the rare. And how they're using and it's, what you're doing cool. with synthetic data and computer vision is interesting because I like how you have taken a computer vision as a niche, as an area, and then within that focus, have, have that focus on synthetic data. That's amazing. Where do you see the company going from here? Do you see, and you mentioned retail as a big industry you're focused on, do you see growing into other industries? Yeah. What, where, where, where do you see the future?
0: So my goal with this company and synthetic data in general is to sort of it's a it's sort of an act of evangelism around the importance of this, and by solving problems in multiple verticals and creating technology that's more horizontal, because simulation has been used for self-driving cars for a while. But what I wanted to say was that you can use this to solve a lot of the world's problems. So that's the goal of what we're trying to do at AI River. We're trying to say problems in agriculture, consumer packaged goods, retail, government, all sorts of things can be solved using synthetic data. The reason why I'm focusing on computer vision is because I think in terms of the future of robotics and AI, you have to solve that perception layer first, right? So if you don't solve vision, robotics becomes a lot harder. If you're trying to get a robot to get a beer from your fridge, good luck if it doesn't know what a fridge looks like, right? So I, I think in terms of the natural progression of AI, you actually have to solve the perception layer first, and then you can, I think you can then more accurately do the robotics a lot easier, right? So mm-hmm. that part of it, th- the way I see the future is that how do we solve computer vision effectively? <laughs> I know that's really broad, but it's, it's a big, big ambition of mine. How, how do we solve it effectively? Can we accelerate the field using synthetic data? Can we scale out these processes across ver- various verticals? And then at that point, move into robotics, reinforcement learning, those ideas, right? And see mm-hmm. if we can then use the simulated worlds to then train robots to do things that are really important, like solve you know food problems or even build shelters and things like that.
2: Yeah. And that kind of transitions into my next question. What trials, tribulations, challenges have you really experienced since um, starting your company?
0: I think product market fit is, is a challenging one and teaching people about synthetic data. I, I did not think it would be so hard to convince people that synthetic data was the way to go. And part of it is because they didn't see any examples of it. They didn't see that it could even potentially work. So we're often the first pioneers of sort of saying, hey, this is a thing that works. Hmm. Let us do this for you and do all that. So that evangelism was very challenging. And we had to create a whole pipeline to benchmark this data and show them that the results are better and things like that. So that was a whole, you know, versus just like making an app, right? You download it and it's a great experience and it's just fun and you can use it. It was a bit more of a complicated process there. But I think at this point, we've got this down streamlined really well. So it's been effective. Other trials and tribulations? Yeah, I think it's just when you're dealing with deep tech and you're dealing with things that are not familiar to people, there's a lot of time you spend uh, explaining it to them.
1: This was excellent, right? And that's exactly... The point, right? Especially they call it the pioneers dilemma, where they haven't seen what you are showing them, that they don't know how to digest and and react to it, right? But it seems like you've gotten some traction with 7-Eleven and other clients there. Let's talk about the industry leaders that can leverage computer vision and synthetic data and computer vision. If they're listening to this right now, what message do you have for them? How can they get on that journey? What is one thing or two things they can do to make things easy for them?
0: I think the one thing they, and this goes back to the original point of how I think synthetic data is actually a fundamental process in terms of a fundamental part of the stack. So if you're a CIO, I think you need to recognize that if you actually want to implement computer vision at your company, you're at a significant disadvantage if you don't use synthetic data. And the reason why is because, A, just data collection is hard. We're all, there's all sorts of privacy issues. Uh, your sensor can change perspective that can completely mess up a deep learning algorithm. And if you want more sophisticated annotations, that's just going to become more and more expensive when you start thinking video and activity and things like that. So you know, if you're competing with other companies and they have a synthetic data platform that they're using to improve their algorithms, you're going to be at a significant disadvantage because of all the things that the synthetic data provides. I mean, now annotation is just GPU cost, right? Which is sub penny, right? It's not like several dollars per image when it comes to some of these complicated annotations. So it's a huge advantage to have that working for you. So that's what I think they need to realize. And I think they need to try this out. And the earlier they try it out, I think the more they'll benefit.
2: Oh, this is always one of my favorite questions to ask, Dale. How did you come up with your name? Your
0: company. So
2: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I know it's like it's it's a it's so rever- fun. reverie, reverie. No, it's a great question. So so reverie, reverie is a short, sweet daydream, right? That's what the word. I think it's, it's originally a French word, and it reflects a, a short, sweet daydream. So the reason why I came up with the word is because I envisioned in the future that the future AI and algorithms are actually going to first learn in the simulator. And then when they come into the real world, that experience of the simulation is a reverie for them. It was a short, sweet mm-hmm. daydream that where they learned how to understand the world. And then mm-hmm. and that's that's why I called it AI reverie. So that's how I think about it.
2: Oh, I I love that. Do you think you can even when you're at the New York Times, do you think that kind of like you know, a kind of like a daydream came up for you too of like, you know what, maybe I'll start a new company.
0: I daydream. I, daydream I go all there. the time. <laughs> you daydream
1: you me you. I, I daydream, <laughs> you
0: daydream all the time. <laughs> time. Uh, yeah. I, I live in I my daydreams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I I I'm a big daydreamer, and it's something I, I think has helped a lot in terms of envisioning this. So
2: mm-hmm. yeah. thank you for something,
1: sharing. Something all entrepreneurs are, right? Uh, yeah, so exactly. how big are you? How big is your company?
0: We're about 30 people now. We're a team that is composed of a lot of really amazing procedural uh, graphics, tech artists, engineers who are game developers in their past, and a, a deep learning team. So it's a really nice synergy where we have a whole content creation side thing of like creating the content, and we have a whole pipeline deep learning team that sees how good that data is. And it's this iterative cycle, this virtuous cycle, where the feedback from the ML team goes to the content generation team and then they make the updates, improvements, and it keeps going in the circular fashion. And that's how mm-hmm. our team is structured. Yeah.
1: So if we were to bring you back here, say, three years from now, where would you be? Where would the company be? How do you envision it?
0: Ooh, a lot more interesting stories, a lot more interesting problems we help solve, the, the change in the attitude of synthetic data, You know, just thinking about how the way we look at images is just so inefficient. Like, the, you know, image, labeled images will terabytes of data, but that can actually all entirely stem from something that fits in a hundred megabyte virtual world, right? Because you can extract an infinite amount of images. So maybe people should start thinking about data now in terms of virtual worlds, simulations. Maybe that's actually how you should think about computer vision data. If be- That becomes the atomic mm-hmm. elements of what what will train something, not mm-hmm. the images themselves, which are very... There's a poverty of information mm-hmm. there, right? So I, I'm hoping mm-hmm. to change mindsets, change hearts, and get people to really think about this as a real option. And the beauty of, of synthetic data and simulation in many ways, you have a sort of precision around what you can do, right? So it becomes our choice of how we want to create that AI. You know, It becomes our choice of how we want to train it versus just randomly just pulling data everywhere. Right. And just who knows what it'll do. Just, you know, especially like, you know, algorithms like GPT-3, right? Like, wh- what kind of data did it ingest? Nobody knows at some point because there's so much yeah. of it. So, but, but with synthetic data, if you have control over the simulations, then yes, you can actually teach it to do things to prevent bias, to do things like that. You know, I want people to hopefully understand that, really believe it, and then, and then have more case stu- studies that, that, that I hope I can share about some mm-hmm. really interesting problems we helped solve. Love Ben.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, do you right. have advice for entrepreneurs who might be listening to the show?
0: Yeah, I, well, there's definitely on the personal level <laughs> to really sort of think about your convictions and about your belief in what you're doing and, and really spend some time meditating on that. Because at some points, you will doubt yourself. And at some points, you'll wonder if this was all worth it. And there are sacrifices being made. But I always would have to go back to my first principles of why I think this is so important and how to make it work in order to keep going. And that's important mm-hmm. to do. And there will be sacrifice. There might be financial sacrifices. You're taking a big risk. At the end of the day, be kind to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And then be kind to others and, and, and try to sort of make something happen in the world that you believe in. So that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's how I think. No,
2: that's that's so valuable. And that kind of goes off to one more question I have. So you were working for this big company and obviously you changed a lot of your life to start your own um, company. Did you have to make major like mindset shifts or did you have to really go inwards, really reprogram like your thought patterns to create a company within itself?
0: I think it was very freeing in some ways. It was Mm -hmm. also very unnerving because, you know, I don't necessarily come from like, an enormously wealthy family at all. So there was a lot of financial risk I had to take that was mm-hmm. that was difficult. I think it was freeing in some ways too because I think, you know, at the New York Times as much as I loved it, any large organization becomes bureaucratic over time. And it becomes really hard to sometimes innovate in that space because of all the sort of roadblocks of people's jobs and responsibilities that get in the way. And so when I really felt like I had the freedom to express and create what I wanted, I think there's, there's a real value there and that I have a lot of gratitude for having the opportunity to do that. I don't mm-hmm. have like a, you know, it's not like I had a, a large family I had to take care of and things like that. So I was very lucky in that sense as well. So for the most part, it, it's a beautiful opportunity if you can do it and, and if you're willing to stick around for it and, and seeing it mm-hmm. from the beginning and having come so far, there's a lot to be grateful for if you can make it there.
1: That's great. You mentioned something interesting, right? And I know all entrepreneurs go through this. There are times when, when things are not going well, things, it is a bit of a roller coaster. Some days you do feel you have disappointed everyone who believes in you. So, do you have a framework or do you have some principles that you apply to go through those days? And how have you gotten through those days?
0: I think the best thing, one of the best things you can do for yourself and this might be in the form of therapy or whatever it is, is to become aware of who you are as a person. So self-awareness is absolutely important because what ends up happening is that sometimes if you don't understand your own emotional triggers, if you don't understand your past, your own past trauma or whatever it is, right? You don't have clarity sometimes in how you make your own decisions and the things you say and how you treat other people. In some ways, it's about learning about yourself, being kind to yourself, being honest, and working on yourself in that regard. Because when you get criticism, when things don't go right, all of a sudden, it's really easy to be hard on yourself. It's really easy to beat yourself down. And that gets into a spiral, right? And then there's this spiral of negativity that can easily descend over you from one mistake. But at the end of the day, if you're not making mistakes, then you're not in some ways progressing as well too, right? So it's okay to make mistakes. Don't beat yourself up completely about it. Try to learn from it and just try to progress from there. But for me, the self-awareness was key because I was able to understand the things that triggered me and made it hard to be a leader, right? And so I was able to know those things and I'm still learning. I'm still figuring these things out, right? So that's very humbling. But it's it's one of those things that I, I feel like is super important as an entrepreneur to know how to work on yourself, to know how to reflect, and to know where your boundaries are and what are the things that are important to you and, and how you work and all of that. I think a lot of people need to do more of that in general. So
1: Yeah. And one thing we're learning is entrepreneurship is 80% mindset. And having the right mindset and and knowing why, knowing your why is Mm -hmm. is super, super important. Hey, Adele, I want to thank you for your time. This was super valuable and very informational. Glad we were able to connect and glad we were able to learn from your experiences. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Natalie, Ari. Thanks. It was great. Thanks for having me on. appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainsbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.